0: Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. This week I had a patient who, while not wearing a mask, asked me why I wasn't wearing a mask. I said, because I had COVID and I'm exposed to it every day, so I have immunity. And she said, just because you had COVID doesn't mean you have immunity. Oh really, that I mowed money back for every physiology class I ever had. I didn't say that. She then said, lots of people got the vaccine, but they're all getting sick anyway. I just don't understand why chiropractors don't get vaccines. Uh, maybe because we can read? I didn't say that either. Instead, I just ignored her, because that's what I usually do when patients say dumb things. Now, I didn't know if she meant the COVID vaccine or if she meant vaccines in general, but that got me thinking. Obviously, the COVID vaccine is an MRA gene therapy that could never really truly be called a vaccine if it wasn't for emergency youth hospitalization. But what about the other vaccines? Is there a problem with polio, MMR, DTP, or Tdap? So I thought I would take some time to talk about vaccines. And what does the science really tell us? I've talked about vaccines before on this podcast, but we've really only scratched the surface. Today I'd like to look at this from a completely different angle, at least to start with. If you haven't read Bruce Lipton's book, The Biology of Belief, you definitely should. It gives the best explanation for how the chiropractic construct of trauma, toxins, and thought actually plays out in the observable science of microbiology. As I was thinking about this, I realized that there is a very definite gap between what the scientists observe in the lab and the public perception of science that's pushed on them by the government agencies and the media. For example, Most of the population still thinks that genetics is the driving factor behind who we are and what we become. It's called genetic determinism. It's the idea that your present reality was set in stone by your genetic inheritance from your parents before you were even born. Things are going well for you? Well, thank your parents because you had nothing to do with it. Things are going poorly for you? Well, blame your parents because you had nothing to do with it either. But then again, your parents had nothing to do with it because they were merely prisoners and slaves to their own genetic inheritance. Once you believe this concept, and it truly is a belief, to a greater extent than most religions, actually, the rapidly following conclusion is that there's nothing you can do to change it. If you can't change it, then what's the harm of taking a vaccine, even an mRNA vaccine, because you can't change your genes, even if you want to? That's all fine and dandy, unless, of course, it isn't true. The observable science, as Dr. Lipton highlights in his book, is that 50 trillion individual cells work both in isolation but also in coordination to produce one functioning human. Each of those cells has an outer cell membrane, and that highly sensitive membrane is constantly reacting to changes in the environment. Much to our surprise, we're not talking about massive changes to the environment, but we're talking about subtle changes, like changes in pH, electrical changes like z-potential or zeta potential, different wavelengths in energy. It was this observable change that led to the title of his book, The Biology of Belief, as it was discovered that what you think and how you believe will produce observable changes in the cell and its subsequent function. Again, this leads me back to the question, are all adjustments beneficial? For that matter, are all therapies beneficial? We can't even say that all food and all exercise is beneficial. And yet we somehow have an instinctive idea of what is and what is not beneficial, even if we can't prove it beforehand. That being said, do we know if vaccines are truly beneficial? As I thought about this question, it immediately occurred to me that when vaccines are tested, we would give the vaccine and then look for changes in the individual. The individual is made up of 50 trillion cells. We could destroy a million cells and that would only be one ten-thousandth of all the cells in your body. It's unlikely that it would even make an observable difference considering the body's remarkable ability to adapt. So we inject a toxin, that's what a vaccine is. We kill off a million cells, all serving an important and vital function. The body adapts, as it does, and we say, see, no observable harm. We're obviously healthier for having done that. But what about the 1 million jobs that aren't getting done because we killed those cells? Not to mention, the worst scenario of all, where we damage the cell, but we don't kill it. So that cell goes on trying to do its job, but failing miserably. Those are the cells we know are most damaging, and they're the ones most likely to increase cancer. Is it a coincidence that there's been a meteoric rise in cancer rates since vaccines became big business in the 20th century? I certainly wouldn't claim that the only reason for the rise in cancer, but it is just as certainly a contributing factor. I can say that because we now understand the effect that vaccines have on toll-like receptors when the immune system is overwhelmed by an unnatural mechanism of infection. The literature has countless articles discussing the interconnectedness of cancer and dysfunctional toll-like receptors. This argument makes it unnecessary to discuss MMR, DTaP, polio, or any other vaccine on an individual basis, although we we could certainly do that, and many have. The real point is, what if there's a fundamental difference between what people think vaccines do in the body and what they actually do? For example, what if a vaccine produced a small benefit to prevent the virus it's intended to prevent, but it increased your susceptibility to other viruses? Is that a vaccine you'd want to take? You're certainly free to make your own decision, but only if you're first presented with the facts. The circumstance I just described is not hypothetical, but an actual circumstance. The Cochrane Collaboration found that the flu vaccine does decrease your risk of getting the flu, although there's no evidence that it decreases transmission or death. And in its place, there's a four times greater risk of acquiring some other virus, most likely an upper respiratory virus. In this situation, it's very easy to manipulate the data. You just tell people that the vaccine reduces the risk of getting the virus, and you conveniently leave out the rest. Now, I don't want you to think that this was necessarily nefarious. The fact is, the researchers fooled themselves. They saw that the vaccine produced a robust antibody response, and they took this to mean that they had induced a perfect immune response in place of the wild-type infection. If you remember, we've previously discussed pathogenic priming, also referred to as antibody-dependent enhancement. In the 1960s, an experimental MERS vaccine was skipped past animal studies and given directly to a group of children. Those children developed a robust immune response, but when the children were later exposed to the wild type virus, they became horribly sick and two of them died. This was the initial event that led to the discovery of antibody-dependent enhancement. In 2014, an experimental vaccine for dengue fever made by Sanofi was given to a group of hundreds of thousands of children in the Philippines. These children, when exposed to wild virus, also became horribly sick and 600 of them died. Right now in the Philippines, 19 public health officials are on trial because they ignored the the known warning signs. But what about the coronavirus? Recently, the U.S. military conducted an experiment. They gave one group of soldiers the flu shot and another group they left unvaccinated. They wanted to see if it would reduce the likelihood of getting COVID, considering the similarities between coronavirus and flu virus. What their study found was a dramatic increase in COVID in the flu-vaccinated group. This demonstrates not only pathogenic priming from the same vaccine, but even from other vaccines. I've seen in my own practice patients who got a flu vaccine only to develop COVID shortly after. At first, I wondered if it was coincidental, but then I came to understand that pathogenic priming can occur across vaccines. With winter around the corner and school starting soon, many people, especially children, will be getting vaccines with no idea that it could increase their susceptibility to developing active COVID. It's certainly something to be aware of. Speaking of antibodies, we would be wise to recognize that the vaccine produces two types of antibodies. The first is neutralizing antibodies. These are the ones that destroy the virus and they're the ones we want to produce. But the vaccine also produces binding antibodies. Binding antibodies have shown to make the spike protein stickier. This could explain why vaccinated people seem to demonstrate the symptoms of the spike protein long after their active infection is gone. In the case of the Moderna COVID vaccine, A small trial was conducted in Seattle, Washington before its release. They took 45 people and divided them up into three groups of 15. These people were super healthy because their exclusion criteria was that if you were obese, you were excluded. If you had a chronic disease, excluded. If you ever smoked, excluded. If you ever drank excessively, excluded. To be blunt, these people didn't look anything like the average American. These people were healthy. In the low-dose group, one out of the 15 got so sick they required hospitalization. That's around 6 or 7%. If you give that vaccine to all 7 billion people on planet Earth, you would have to expect at least 420 million hospitalizations as a direct result of that vaccine. And that's on the low end. In the high-dose group, they had three reactions to the vaccine. That's an indication of a dose response, meaning that the higher the dose, the more people will get sick because of it. Three out of 15 is 20%. If you gave that dose to the seven billion people on planet Earth, you would expect 1.4 billion hospitalizations as a direct result of that vaccine. Of course, that didn't stop them. But I do find that study to be insightful as far as what we might expect from the mass vaccination campaign seen around the world. Thinking back to that lady's question that I started with, I really would like to address this lady's question. It seems the problem is that the general public and more importantly, the medical community have been sold a model of immunity that's simply untrue. First, we're told that antibodies create immunity. Therefore, high antibodies means immunity and low antibodies means no immunity. As we previously touched on, people with high antibodies are consistently getting sick when exposed to the very virus they were immunized against. We need a better model, but that model comes from a better understanding of the science. It's also important for the general public to understand that science is not a body of knowledge. It's a method for understanding. The idiotic concept of science as a body of knowledge reached a peak when then-President Obama proclaimed that the science is settled. That's only possible if we're talking about a body of knowledge. If we're referring to a method for understanding, then it can never be settled because it does not draw concrete conclusions. I've said many times that when reading studies on PubMed, I'm often impressed by the discoveries that are made with good science, but then flabbergasted by the ridiculous and unfounded conclusions drawn by the same researchers. Their scientific discoveries are science, but their conclusions, which are often bought and paid for, are not. So if we need a better model and explanation for this vaccination increasing disease fiasco, then what should it be? Antibody response is not how the body stops or eliminates disease. Antibody response happens further down the chain to prevent future disease. To understand the process, we must first understand that viruses have been vilified due to their mere presence during many disease episodes. We then tend to personify the virus and call it a bug as though it's sentient and it's actively seeking out to harm and destroy us. Viruses, it turns out, are not even alive. They can't eat, they can't eliminate, they can't grow or respirate. They present no evidence of life. They're merely packages of DNA or RNA, and in fact, life on Earth would not even be possible without them. This is because when they infect a cell, they perform a system upgrade that takes that cell and ultimately the entire organism to a higher level. Symptoms happen when the organism fails to adapt to the new upgrade. In essence, it isn't a problem with the virus, it's a problem with the host organism and a lack of adaptability. What do you know? Chiropractic's right again. It's all about adaptability. Anyway, when you give a vaccine, you create an immune response toward any cell that contains that particular DNA or RNA upgrade. That means that when you're exposed to the virus and your cells need to upgrade, your body will attack the cell that contains the upgrade and destroy it. The antibody response you've created actively prevents the upgrade from taking place, thereby causing symptoms as the body fails to adapt and begins to suffer a system breakdown as a consequence. If you're wondering how true this is, a study was recently done looking at mass quantities of blood held in nearly all of Europe. What they found, very much by accident, was that 6% of the blood contained evidence of HIV without the donor experiencing any symptoms. If we extrapolate that out, it would mean 420 million cases of HIV around the world. That would make HIV more prevalent than hep C, but that's currently not what we're being told. This serves as evidence that HIV can be incorporated into our genome without any adverse effects, but it's when we fail to assimilate and adapt that we see full-blown AIDS. This is also the reason why herd immunity, as we know it, is a false concept. The medical mantra will tell you that herd immunity is a consequence of maintaining high antibody levels in a given population. The real cause of herd immunity is that when enough of the animals or humans have incorporated the new DNA into their genomes, the virus is no longer of any consequence because the bulk of the population has now upgraded beyond it. This is then evidenced by their higher antibody levels. If you've ever wondered how it is that people test positive on PCR testing for COVID without showing any outward signs of disease, it's because the PCR test is detecting the change or upgrade to their genome, but they successfully adapted so there were no outward symptoms. In other words, antibodies don't create immunity. They're merely evidence that you have immunity. In the case of vaccines, there are false evidence of it because the actual gene transcription caused by the virus never actually happened, and the vaccines can't replicate that, not without directly giving you the virus, which is what the so highly touted smallpox vaccine did. That vaccine actually led to incredibly high morbidity rates, mainly due to the fact that the mechanism of entry was so different from how one would naturally acquire the disease that the body was handicapped to create a defense against it. So the answer to that lady's question, in contrast to our basic assumption, is that chiropractors are not opposed to vaccines because we're obstinate and flatly opposed to all things medical. It's because the most basic assumptions about health, immunity, and vaccines are not supported by the known mechanism of how the body works and the physiology of the immune system. Louis Pasteur died in 1895. Since then, nearly every assumption underlying the concept and process of immunization has remained unchanged and dogmatically set in stone. You would think that Watson and Crick's discovery of the double helix and our understanding of how viruses interact with DNA would alter our view and cause us to at least question whether or not we're helping or doing harm. But sadly, that's never happened. We continue to chase high antibody levels without any regard for what this might actually be doing to the organism or its genetic makeup. I don't think there's much chance, if any, of convincing the medical establishment or its members that their paradigm is wrong. At this point, medicine is as closely held as a religion as any actual religion, except they're convinced that everyone else, especially chiropractors, are the religious zealots. In fact, that was the whole point of Robert Mendelson's book, Confessions of a Medical Heretic, an absolute must-read, by the way. However, I do feel like there's potential with patients, mainly because I have this conversation weekly, if not daily, where patients ask questions because what they're told is science doesn't match with what they're seeing with their own eyes. Why are all my friends who got vaccines now getting sick? I'm sure we all get questions like that, at least occasionally. I know we don't always feel like we have the time, but we should be prepared to answer that question. That usually means rehearsing it in your head to make sure you can explain things logically and not haphazardly. I'm throwing at you a bunch of studies and such, but that's just to build your Rolodex of info because you never know what pushback you might receive. In the case of the lady I previously mentioned, I did not attempt to explain anything to her. That's because she wasn't really asking the question. She wasn't genuinely curious. She was trying to establish herself as the authority and not me. In her mind, the status quo is the authority. So why do you have to insist on being different? Do you really think you're smarter than the scientists? Well, sometimes yes. Most of the time I don't think laboratory scientists are stupid, but I do think they're paid for. But there's one thing we have that they don't, that will make us smarter, so to speak, and that is interaction with real people in a clinical setting. The average person does not understand the tug of war between the clinical scientists and the laboratory scientists. They also don't understand that laboratory scientists are obsessed with both data and the average, while the clinical scientists are obsessed with the individual. The laboratory scientists don't understand the flaw in their understanding. But Let me give you an example. Let's say you do a study to look for adverse effects. So you study a thousand people and you find no deaths. Okay, the intervention is safe. Let's give it to the whole world. But it turns out your intervention has one death per 10,000 people. That's 100 deaths per one million people. If we gave it to the whole world, that would be 7,000 deaths worldwide. Well, that's just the cost of doing business. Those people would have died anyway, there's no accountability for the fact that they were wrong. As a clinician, if you have one adverse event or God forbid, one death, that family is going to sit in front of you and ask, what happened? For the most part, the medical establishment has taken the position that they don't have to answer that question and the people who ask it are unable to understand the answer. The public needs to demand answers, but that will only happen if they understand that they've been lied to, used, and looked down on by the people who sell them therapies with no accountability for the results and the consequences. I'm sure I'll talk about this again in the future, but this is the reason why I'm talking about it today. People need to know that their bodies are fully capable and adaptability is the name of the game. If they're getting sick and having symptoms, they need to ask what have I been doing wrong that's inhibiting my ability to adapt. I had this odd thought just the other day. You cannot measure the degree to which you are adapting You can only measure the degree to which you're not adapting. That's what we do. We measure it and we correct it. This needs to be the message we communicate. We aren't anti-vaccine, we are pro-adaptation. And I've just explained to you how vaccines interfere with adaptation. The whole world can see it because vaccine failure is in everybody's face right now. We have the answer to that question and science gave it to us. Well, I hope you found this helpful and I hope you have an opportunity to use it this week. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible. I'll see you again next time.